Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all of God's creatures. I'm Rev. Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. And I'm Dr. Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor Woo-hoo! of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. <laughs> I'm still getting used to that whole doctor thing. I, I love Paul, it. Paul, I just uh, defended my dissertation last oh, week. So. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Our co-hosts, Rosie and Paul, are off this week, but we've got a special episode for you. Uh, Today's episode covers the lectionary first reading for Sunday, November 12th, and we'll be looking at Joshua 24, verses 1 to 3a, and then jumping to 14 to 25. Mm -hmm. And this week, we won't be doing it alone. We have a guest scholar to walk with us through this text, and we're so excited to have him here. That's right. With us today is the Reverend Dr. Paul R. Henlicke. Paul is a Lutheran theologian and author, as well as an ordained pastor. He is the Distinguished Fellow and Research Professor of the Institute of Lutheran Theology and the author of numerous books and articles. Dr. Hinlicky recently wrote a theological commentary on the book of Joshua with Brazos Theological Commentary Series through Baker Publishing Group, hence his presence with us today. Together with his daughter, the Reverend Dr. Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, Paul co-hosts the podcast, Queen of the Sciences, Conversations Between a Theologian and Her Dad, where they address issues of theology, ministry, and the Bible together. Paul, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you, and I'm pleased to be able to talk about this concluding passage in the book of Joshua with you. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I I do have to say, though, before we dive in, um, I I saw on your website that you farm some land in Virginia. Um, I was actually just out in South Dakota last week where we were introducing our kids to harvest on the farm that my husband's family still owns and operates. Um, So so I'm curious, what do you plant and how's harvest going? Well, uh, it's all used up old mountain land. That's why I was able to, I could afford to buy it, (laughs) burned out and eroded. Uh, But I've been into regenerative agriculture uh, since I started with the property, Mm. uh, restoring the pastures. And uh, we have a a small beef operation with Irish Dexter cattle. And uh, we have chickens, we raise chickens and sell eggs and I'm also a beekeeper, and that's part of All our right. operation. People can look at the website, stgallfarm.com. Okay. S-T-G-A-L-L.com. St. Gall was the Irish monk who, by legend, converted the bear-worshipping Swiss uh, to Christianity. <laughs> and so the icon of him is offering a loaf of bread to a black bear who's bringing him firewood in exchange. Oh. Cool. So, so we think that icon is really cool, and it's kind of a symbol. We have a lot of black bears on our bridgetop. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about the nerdiest uh, introduction to a farm that I could ever think of. So. <laughs> right. <Yep. laughs> Paul, I've, I've really been enjoying uh, reading through your Joshua commentary in the Brazos series, and I was wondering, could you say a word for our listeners about your overall approach in that book and maybe what makes it a theological commentary versus other approaches? Thank you, Tim, for that. I'll try to be succinct. First of all, I would just say, because it's such an offensive book with all the slaughter that goes Mm -hmm. on, and this offense is not new, I discovered the church father Origen, when he preached on homilies on Joshua, had regularly to tell his listeners, I know this is disgusting, but listen to this for the spiritual sense. Uh So this scandal of the book of Joshua is not new, it's old. 
Number two, in Origen's context, it was his conflict with the Gnostics, who mm-hmm. were arguing that the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful, vengeful demon, not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Origen feels compelled somehow to interpret this text as consistent with the gospel of the second Joshua, Jesus Christ. Now, that's because in his Greek language, Jesus in Greek is the translation both of the Hebrew Yehoshua um, uh, from the, uh, into the Septuagint, and that's also the name of Jesus in the Greek right. New Testament. Mm-hmm. So, Origen says, we have to read the first Joshua in the light of the second Joshua. That, that would be one point of my commentary. A second point would be, if you love the Exodus, you can't hate the book of Joshua. Mm. It's on a total continuum. Mm. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is, is his name, Miriam sang in joy on the other side of the Red Sea, uh, seeing the deliverance that they had received and celebrating the Lord as a warrior. And uh, we see today that the battle against the Canaanite city-states is an extension of the liberation of the people of the land right. uh, from Egyptian hegemony, which was um, expressed in those Can- walled Canaanite city-states. Yeah, the, the, the violence that's in this book is not exclusive to the passages that we're looking at today, and nor is it exclusive to the Hebrew Bible. There's, there's plenty of uh, right. violence to wrestle with in the New Testament as well. And look at our world today. We really need to wrestle with the problems of violence and not in a kind of superficial way of saying that's like the Gnostics saying that's that's a sign of an evil God mm-hmm. rather than uh, the God who spared not his own son but gave him up for us all. Right. How, how yeah. do you Paul if, if I can if I can touch on that point a little bit too, one of the things that as a is a professor of the Hebrew Bible I'm always trying to encourage my students to do is to take books um, on their own terms, especially in the right. Old Testament, without you know jumping straight to Jesus, which is kind of the the children's story or the the children's sermon answer. And I appreciate what you said about reading Joshua in light of the second Joshua. Can you talk a little bit about how you navigated that though in writing this commentary? Obviously, as a theologian, you're going to be writing it as a Christian. But what did you do to sort of tend to or honor the book on its own terms um, without that jump to Jesus? Excellent, excellent. Because I think that any jump, as you say, jump to Jesus has to be well-grounded in the Mm. text in its own original context, literary context in any case. Yeah. Um, And I would say this, uh, one of the enigmas of the book of Joshua is that the the command for harem warfare, and that you know that Hebrew term Mm -hmm. is translated in various ways. There's no consistent translation of it, but it's basically the command to exterminate, to leave nothing living, right? Um, um, Two things about that. Uh, In Israel's case, harem warfare undercuts the classical motive for war, aggressive warfare in the ancient Near East, right. b- because that was to slaughter the male population who were the warriors in order to enslave the women and uh, confisc- confiscate the livestock. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you have to, I mean, this horrible, severe command to exterminate all 
says you're not going to war for the sake of booty. Yeah, right. Booty is not the purpose of your war. Your war is um, to um, liberate the land from the Canaanite city-states and their kings. Mm. That's the purpose. And secondly, throughout the as the book carries on, beginning with the first paradigmatic story of um, uh, Rahab, the prostitute in, in Jericho, uh, the command to exterminate all is never consistently carried out. In fact, it breaks down in the course of the book. It proves to be unfulfillable. That's in the case mm, of Rahab, yeah. and it survives, and then the Gibeonites survive, and then through the rest of the book, there are regular reports that Israel fails to fulfill the obligation of harem warfare. Uh, so by the end of the book, you're left with this total anomaly yeah. that the, the command to exterminate could not survive, and Israel will live intermingled with people, other peoples. Mm. It's kind of funny. This is just a random thought, but it's almost like every time God tries to land on the side of violence, it, it, the it's like almost the divine creator can't go all the way with it. You know, it's like, I'm going to wipe everything out except for Noah. I'm going to, you know, do away with all the Israelites except for you, Moses. And we're going to kill all the people oh, except for Rahab and except for and except for. It's it's almost like the divine impulse to create keeps overwinning this divine impulse to violence. Well, you know, Rachel, that's why I love Hosea. Chapter eleven. A hundred percent. It's my favorite. You know, that, <laughs> that I my compassion overcomes yeah. me. I will not come to destroy. Right. Oh, and that's I, so good. But I, I think you know you, you can't sentimentalize that. You've got right. to take seriously the wrath of the God of love oh, against yeah. what is against love. Yeah. And that's in the in these texts that's represented by Egyptian hegemony expressed through the Canaanite uh, city states, mm. right? Mm. Yeah. Joshua does not want to be a king. He kills kings. Yeah. And he, yeah. he, he, like Jesus in John, when the people want him to make him king, he defers. He, he runs away. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, and yeah. at the end, in fact, in this text we're talking about today, he's awarded the title Ebed Yahweh, servant of the Lord, uh, mm-hmm. which is the, nice. the honorific title that was first and exclusively Moses. given to Moses. Right. But then now it is awarded to Joshua precisely because he doesn't insist on establishing a dynasty. The the hierarchy here always has the Lord at the top. The, yeah. the Holy One of Israel is the the one who reigns, and uh, the the human leaders here are servants, slaves. That, even that's represented in the in the in the in the wild march around Jericho, where they're kept carrying the empty throne. <laughs> of the invisible Lord, yeah, seven times around the city, exposing their themselves, you know, and their strength to the inhabitants of Jericho. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. You know, it, it it strikes me as interesting the way that all these various uh, pericopes within Joshua kind of just flow so naturally out in this conversation. And I I wondered one more question about the commentary, Paul. I haven't written a commentary, but I imagine, uh, you know, the the process of really just immersing yourself in a particular biblical book and, and the flood of scholarship that surrounds it. I just wonder, how is that process of spending this time pickling in the book of Joshua had a lasting effect on, on uh, you know, do you wake up and, and uh, you know, look out your window and, and see things through a Joshua-shaped lens? Or <laughs> how, how has it had a lasting effect on you? 
That's a, that's a great question. Let me just confess to two professors of Hebrew Bible. After uh, almost 40 years since I was in seminary, I had to dust off my Hebrew textbooks sure. <laughs> and get back into the language just to follow along. You yeah. know, so that was quite a challenge. And I'm, but I'm, it's a happy challenge. I'm very happy, and I would encourage if you're preparing for ministry, for heaven's sakes, please learn Greek and Hebrew. Oh, amen. So that you can read the Bible as it's meant to be read and have a deeper translations just don't do justice. Mm. And you, you, because you translators are constantly making decisions and they're making decisions in the light of a kind of a theory of the whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that can be very variable, you know? So I would just say getting into the text uh, was a wonderful immersion experience for me. Um, And, what made this a theological commentary was I announced from the beginning, theology is knowledge of God. Mm. And so what we're looking for in the book of Joshua is the knowledge of God that it bestows, that it gives us. Mm. And I summarize that with the simple statement that recurs throughout Joshua, the Lord will fight for you. The mm. Lord will fight for you. Now, the twist, of course, is that the Lord who fights for us can also fight against us. Yeah. And that's yeah, would bring us directly to our pericope for today. Well, I, maybe this is a great time to turn then to uh, Joshua 24. Uh, and, and Paul, would you uh, mind reading it for us in English? Sure. This is from the New RSV. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, and the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Now the Perkerby cuts out some some pretty significant verses when we go to verse 14. Mm Mm-hmm. Now therefore revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, We will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight. He protected us along the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. 
And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and him we will obey. Here endeth the reading. Ah, oh, so good. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's just, I, I, I don't even have a question to begin with. I just am I'm so struck by the the drama of the moment and the way the words capture that it's such a it's such a fraught moment it's such a the stakes are so high the you know the earnestness is so there and yet the people's hands are covered in blood and their pockets are full of idols you know it's just <laughs> right exactly <laughs> and it, it strikes me that we're jumping in here of course right at the end of the book of Joshua yeah and even after everything that's that's taken place up to this point Evidently, they've been carrying gods with them this whole time, uh, you know, from from the land of Egypt and and uh, mixing them with the gods of the land with it that they've been uh, uh, conquering along the way. Yeah, it's yeah, just it's so a, surprising. It's a kind. It's a kind of a double insurance policy. Yeah, right. The, the, the Lord is good for war and politics, but a little bail isn't bad for fertility. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it. You know what's dramatic about this? You know. Chapter 23, the previous chapter, is what scholars have debated about for genera- two generations, whether it is a covenant renewal ceremony. But the point of the previous chapter is that it's a covenant between the Lord and Israel renewed. Yeah. Chapter 24 is different. The action here is, is between Joshua and yeah. the people. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. so-called covenant with which it ends is not really a covenant, or it's not a covenant with the Lord. It's a covenant between Joshua and the people. And that's, the text indicates by Joshua saying that you are witnesses against yourselves, and the people concur. We are witnesses. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and so Joshua is making his final pitch to the people. I am not going to be a king like the Canaanites. I am not going to build a walled city and and and, and with a palace and have a dynasty. Uh, I have lived among you as the servant of the Lord, and therefore you will serve the Lord also. That's Mm -hmm. what your liberation is all about. Mm -hmm. And if you default from that, if you fall back into the ways of Canaan and Egypt, you're going to get the same treatment that the Amorites have got. I agree. And I, I wish that then the lectionary had added on verses 26 and 27, because I think they actually bring that whole cycle to conclusion. Because, you know, Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and then he takes a large stone and he sets it up and he says to the people, see, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us, and therefore it shall be a witness against you if you deal falsely with your God. So often we talk about the land as this sort of passive recipient, and Joshua actually like brings the land into the covenant as a witness, that the, the very land itself is the thing that's going to be a witness against the people. And of course, what eventually ends up happening when we get to Ezekiel is the land itself vomits them out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful, Rachel. I, that's a, that's a fresh perspective on that, that the land itself 
is made to bear witness. That's mm. that's really great. I was just struck by the the conversation around Joshua's identification of of himself as uh, an evid, as a servant, a slave, mm. rather than a king. And uh, you know the um, the sort of needlepoint. Um, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that you know my household, my my dynasty, my bait, right is mm. is. Um, is not going to be a royal bait, a royal dynasty, but we are going to be a house of servants. Yeah. Identifying nice. the role of his descendants after him as as servants of the Lord rather than rulers over the people. That's a, a really interesting um way to conclude this book. And I wonder what might this be saying in conversation with the later narratives about the Israelite and Judahite monarchy. Well, you know, uh, in my commentary, I argued, and I think this is almost a consensus among scholars today, that Joshua, the book of Joshua in the form that we have it is a product of the post-exilic situation. Mm. And uh, so here you have people wondering, how is it that we have lost the land which the Lord gave to our ancestors? Yeah. How mm-hmm. has that happened? And so it's a very critical reflection um, um, going back on the prehistory of the monarchies in Israel and Judah um, to set up to set up a kind of a prophetic analysis that you've defected from the Lord as your king. Uh, isn't that what Sam, Samuel says? Uh, yes, mm-hmm. regarding the anointing of Saul, when the Lord says, "They haven't rejected you; they've rejected me as their king." Right. Right, exactly. and so it's it's the book of Joshua sets up that very critical perspective on the monarchy. Yeah. I think, though, that part of the drama of the text is Joshua's frank uh, statement: "You cannot serve the Lord, for yeah. He is a holy God; He is a jealous God; He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins." Yeah. So, can you flesh that out for a little bit for us, especially like you know, I know I I can feel my fellow Lutheran in the room here. So, like <laughs> forgiveness of sins and God's willingness to forgive sins is the the ultimate, really, in uh, theological understanding of God. So, how do you how do you wrestle with that text here, that verse here, and what it means both in this context and what then we should take from it to understand about God? Yeah. Here, I I, I constantly uh, invoke Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. Um, to explain this. The forgiveness of sins is not cheap. It's not some kind of automatic um, uh, policy. Uh, I mean, Voltaire quipped, of course God forgives sins. That's his job. <laughs> you know, and and this is kind of the essence of cheap, cheap grace. Yeah. In, according to Bonhoeffer's definition, that cheap grace is having the idea that God is forgiving. It's having the concept that God mm-hmm. is merciful. It's having the doctrine that God always forgives, which becomes nothing but a rote cliche. Mm-hmm. And Bonhoeffer says this is nothing but a cheap covering for unrepentance, for fail- huh. failure to repent. Now, what would be costly grace in turn? When you think about the act of forgiveness, whenever you forgive, you are giving up your right to retaliate. Yeah. You are giving up your right to take vengeance. You are giving up even more morally the sense that the offender should be punished yeah. because of the injustice that, that has been done. 
So forgiveness is not easy. Forgiveness is very demanding, uh, especially when you've really been hurt by an offender. And Mm. of course, the center of that is uh, the the cross of Christ for Christians, Mm. that the forgiveness of sins is not uh, something that Jesus in his ministry exercised, but then, uh, you know, as it were, in his cross, Jesus took responsibility for all the sin that he had forgiven. He took it upon himself. He, he who knew no sin was made to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how Paul explains this. Mm-hmm. So in all these ways, I would say forgiveness is not cheap. Forgiveness is costly. It costs the one who forgives. And here the text is telling us, I think, the way we have to paraphrase this theologically, um, is that sin is serious, sin is injurious, sin hurts, sin offends God and damages his creatures. Sin is serious business, and Mm. God is holy and does not just wink at sin. Mm. Um, All of those themes, I guess, is how it should be explained. Of course, that takes us beyond the book of Joshua, the Mm. explanation I've given. Mm. Mm-hmm. I also I also felt myself drawn to that line. Um, you cannot serve the Lord. It, it gives sort of a there's a kind of sadness to the to the yeah. way that this book concludes. Um, it's not a triumphal ending to the story. It it actually it, I can't help but think of um, the Last Supper and uh, uh, Jesus's interaction uh, with Peter there. Yeah. Of uh, wow. you know I. Peter says, I'll, I'll stand with you. And, and Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me. And that's, you know, in all, wow, all four Gospels, nice. there's a kind of sadness that comes to us, both of these stories, in retrospective. And I, I think your observation, Paul, that this version of Joshua that we have comes to us in retrospect, you know, looking back from a post-exilic situation of the failure that had occurred and giving, a, giving some sort of explanation to that. Which which gives a sort of sad conclusion to this narrative of of conquest, but then also uh, on the flip side of that, uh, an offering of of a of hope. There's a choose yeah. today, choose today yeah. who you'll serve. Just as a side note, every time I come across the word today, Hayom in Joshua, um, that's significant to me. That that phrase, you know, to this day, Ad Hayom Hazeh, is really prominent in the book of Joshua. Right. And it always sort of collapses the the time of the setting of the book with the time of the author. Yeah. And I would say also with the I, times of reception up to our own today. And it's a hopeful message. There's a there's yeah. a today call. Like mm. today you can choose again whom mm. you'll serve. And uh there can there can be a different outcome. I think that's nice. And I think that even it collapses backwards for me as well to uh, Deuteronomy that, you know, it was not to your ancestors that God made this promise. It was to you here now today. Um, So it almost gathers that today, almost gathers up both the past, present, and future um, in that Hayom Hazeh. Yeah, you're both correct. And if we look at that long speech, especially the part that the lectionary cuts out. I know. Yes. (laughs) It's all addressed. uh, Whatever happened in the past is addressed. This happened to you, to the present auditors of the the speech, right? You know, I thank you for picking up on the comparison with Peter. I talked about that in the commentary Mm. about the uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, Yeah. And I think that's the way to look at this. Uh, 
it's really a message of impotence. You cannot serve the Lord your God. You're going to fail. You don't have. You might. You might want to. Yeah. They repeatedly <laughs> say that they want to, but what what you want and what you can actually do are two different things. And so there's a question of impotence here. And of God's provision in spite of and in light of that, right? And, and that's where I really wish, like of all the the text that gets cut out, besides that ending, which I wish they would put back in, I wish they had grabbed verse 13 and brought it in. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, towns you had not built, and you live right. in them. You eat the fruits of vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant. I mean, it's kind of the sense of like, look, you weren't even able to establish this land, and yet I still provided for you in it. it. It's almost like when we think we're really doing a good job of following God, God's like, mm, but are we? Like, are we really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great, Rachel. And you know, that's another comment you could make about all the terrible warfare preceding this in the book of Joshua. It's all miraculous. It's all fabulous. You cannot yeah. eliminate the fabulous, miraculous character of the warfare. No rational king would ever go to war this way. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, ha- have your army circumcised right before the big battle <laughs> and then march around the city seven di- times in seven days and show your forces off to the opposition. Okay. Uh, right. This <laughs> yeah, is going to go yeah. well. <laughs> and, right, because know, the the emphasis here, right, is that this is this God. is the Lord's doing. This yeah. is God's doing. Right. Yeah and God's accomplishment, and and not theirs. Yeah. So when we get to the call to action, choose this day whom you'll serve, That's it's not like a, a choice between uh, equivalent options, right? It's yeah. not, you know, pick your yeah. favorite flavor of ice cream here among the gods. It's, <laughs> it's here's a, a several verses that we skipped over, just a rehearsal of all the ways that God took initiative to provide for this people from liberating them from Egypt to bringing them into the land. It's sort of like, almost like, like a mother saying, you know, I gave birth to you. Oh my gosh. I changed your diapers. (laughs) I fed you from my own body. I kept you alive for all these years. And now, yeah, you can choose who who are you going to serve? Right. So it's it's not really a choice. (laughs) Hey ma, I'm grown up already. Leave me alone. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Never too old to respect your mother. And I think, I mean, all of this discussion of, of sort of the fantasticness of the war, probably needs to be brought into conversation with what's happening in Israel-Palestine today. Oh. Uh, you know, we, you, Paul, you used the, the line, which I think is absolutely right for the biblical times, that this was a war to liberate the land from the people who were living there. But dang, when I hear that today in, you know, October, November of 2023, yeah. there's a, so how, how would you suggest, do you, either of you have any ideas about like, preaching this text in this historical moment? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's really a challenging question. I, Sarah and I, my daughter and I just put out a, a bonus episode on our podcast about Hamas's attack on Israel hmm. and Israel's response. Um, I think in a nutshell, I would say this. It may be that Hamas is motivated religiously. Uh, we saw in the videos of the murders and kidnappings, Allah, Allahu Akbar, repeatedly being chanted by the, the Hamas terrorists as they slaughtered and raped and kidnapped. It may be then that Hamas is motivated by some kind of fanatical Islamic theology. 
Israel dare not respond in kind. Mm. Israel dare not fight a holy war or anything like that. Uh, Israel must learn from the book of Joshua this is exactly not what it can do. Mm. It it has to fight for purely secular purposes uh, with the goal of... um, I mean, I don't think we can ask anybody to live next door to a neighbor who's intent on genocide. Um, that would be unfair to the Israelis, I think, to ask them to live in in perpetuity next to a, a, a murderous uh, neighbor. But the other side of that is the strong distinction between Hamas and the Palestinians, mm. and that the goal has to be the justice of a, of a two-state solution, for that, and that would accord with secular purposes in mm. Israel's response, not religious ones. And I think this is where, you know, I really feel the privilege of not being, and I, I use privilege in a sort of negative sense here, of not being in a pulpit regularly these days, because I can talk about these things to my students and I can advise them, but I don't actually have to be the one preaching mm about this. And that's that's where I just feel so much empathy and compassion and worry for, you know, whoever it is out there who's who's preaching on this text at this moment. Yeah. It can be helpful to take a sort of figurative approach to the book of Joshua in sermons, but I think in the in the context that we're living through right now, I feel like it needs to be clarified perhaps from the pulpit. The, the types of yeah. things that you're you're talking about, Paul, that the modern state of Israel is not biblical Israel, right? And the Palestinians as a people are not the Canaanites of the Book of Joshua, yeah. right? So the Book of Joshua is not a license for some sort of modern state of Israel to to possess the land by dispossessing its indigenous inhabitants. That's yeah. It just yeah. it sort of needs to be said so that we don't so that that listeners in in churches don't interpret this book as a kind of license for a certain political perspective today. Uh, yeah, and I don't know how you do that in the space of a short sermon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I would think that this would be a, a, an occasion to have a special Bible study. Mm, where mm. there can be give and take back and forth between the pastor or teacher and the uh, people of, who attend the, the Bible study, yeah. uh, where these things can be discussed in a in, in a, a more a different uh, in a teaching kind of a mode rather than a preaching kind of mode. Uh, yeah, I, I think a, that's a great suggestion. It it really is, and dear listeners, perhaps if you're if you're listening right now and are like, well, thanks, I was hoping for some sermon ideas. Um, perhaps what this does is equip you for the side conversations that I'm sure your parishioners have been having with you about uh, what's happening overseas and about the Bible itself. Um, if even in the midst of all of that, you're still like, no, no, I'm gonna preach this, friends. Then uh, perhaps it might be good now to turn to any sort of preaching ideas or angles we might uh we might have to offer you brave ones out there. Uh Tim Paul, you, anything come to mind for you? Well, let me let me bridge from that to to a preaching angle. Uh one thing that I've I I feel like I I gleaned a bit even from from Paul's commentary is the sense in this 
passage that even biblical Israel didn't own the land. Yeah. It was not theirs. It did not belong to them. Exactly. The book of Joshua and our our passage here presents the land not as ancient Israel's rightful possession, yeah. but as a kind of um, conditional tenancy that they had of a land that yeah. was ultimately owned by God and yeah. uh, a tenancy that could be revoked. Yeah. Right. And I, I think that theme is really strong in in the the passage that we're reading here. And and I think that that's a, a preachable point. Yeah, and I think yeah. you can connect that with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah. Am I right? They shall inherit the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Inherit the land, actually. I mean, this is yeah, nice. a direct commentary yeah. on the inheritance of the, the land given to the ancestors. You know, it's interesting. I as I've I've been sitting here listening to our conversation and thinking about it, I I still keep coming back to these um, idols. I I like I said at the beginning, <laughs> I was just in South Dakota a couple uh, last weekend, and Pastor Laura Phillips from Renner Lutheran Church in South Dakota, a little shout out there. She was the one who had the line <clears throat> that I used at the beginning that we've all got idols in our pockets, <laughs> and and I just thought that's such a great line that preaches so well, and it's so true because anything can become an idol, and once it is one, we like to keep it very close to us. So you know, <laughs> I, I think that our favorite theology can become idolatrous when it it leads us places that we're not willing to be honest about or to be authentic with. Um, the land itself can become an idol, as yep. you know. I think the the text here kind of warns us about. Um, our own insurance policies can become idols. And um, I think that that could be a a preaching angle that maybe gathers up um, some of the things that we've talked about. Here's one, here's a line, Rachel, I used in a sermon once. I said, you know, you're all idolaters. You all worship, (laughs) you all worship the Roman goddess Fortuna. (laughs) And then I I said, and they looked at me stunned, and I said, you're buying lottery tickets, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I I would definitely yeah. in in a sermon that I might preach on this, I would emphasize the the theme of service that is so yeah. prominent in this text. I, I think I counted up somewhere. There's um, uh, sixteen, I think, verbs that have the the root avad. Wow. Uh, in this, just in this one passage, right. as as mm-hmm. well as a few nouns, um, <laughs> and. Uh, so I, I can't read this text without hearing Bob Dylan, you know, in my head. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yeah, that's, sort that's of, great. That's Joshua's right. uh, call to the people, uh, choose choose to serve the mm-hmm. Lord. And and that I think there's a sermon there that we as Christians can hear ourselves. Yeah. Uh, are are we giving our allegiance, our devotion to the gods of of our, our own greed, our consumerism? Yep. yep some sort of American dream or the military industrial complex, whatever sort of religious structures, all sorts of gods that, that vie huh. for our avad, our avodah. Yeah. Uh, or, or are we, um, can we choose today, this day, um, to give our allegiance and our service to God mm. who, who invites us into uh, a, a kind of partnership in the world? Mm. That's great, Tim. And you, you can point to verse 29, another important statement that's left out of the lectionary reading. And after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died, being Mm -hmm. 110 years old. He's awarded that title, servant of the Lord, Mm -hmm. precisely Mm -hmm. because he does not aspire to being like a Canaanite king. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes. So that that sort of theme within Christian theology that the um, it, this this comes from the Gospels as well. You know, those who would be leaders among you would become the servant of all. Yeah, yeah. And that's always Jesus sets that in contrast to the the Gentiles. You know how it is among the Gentiles mm-hmm. how they lord exactly. it over one another. It shall not be so among you. Yeah. But the yeah. greatest shall be as the least, and all that, right? Yeah, so there's really a, 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 a Christological alternative to the power politics that dominate uh, the nations. Yeah, and the roots of that are found here in Joshua, right? Like, And that's where I think our, we kind of come full circle to our, our initial statement, is that you don't necessarily need to jump to Jesus to make sense of this, because it's there. God, even in Joshua, is saying, you want to be my people, then you serve. You know, this is a liberation for service, not a liberation for conquest. Well, that sounds like a great place to wrap up our conversation today. Thank you so much, Paul, for being a part of this and for really a stimulating conversation. Yeah, yeah thank you. Good to meet you guys. And um, I'm happy to have been on your uh, podcast. And uh, I'll be excited to listen to it when you're done editing it. <laughs> Thank you to all of you out there for listening. First Reading is produced by Rachel and me, along with our fantastic colleagues, Rosie and Paul. You can learn more about our podcast and find back episodes at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also be listening to this special crossover episode in the feed for Paul Hinlicky and Sarah Wilson Hinlicky's podcast, The Queen of the Sciences. Thanks again to Paul and Sarah for reaching out to us to suggest uh, having this conversation. Until next time over here at First Reading, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching.